from PRX. Stew. Stew. D-D-E-F. Studio. That's it. Right? Studio. 360 with Carl Anderson. Kurt Anderson. Kurt Anderson. I listen to it on the uh, radio in my car. Well, don't be sniffy about it. I'm not pens. being sniffy. I think I'm you a, are. No, no. You've got a nose for it. Oh, gosh. Wow. What are you saying over there? Today on the show, no one in their right mind would ever commit an assassination with a crop dusting plane. The devil is walking around in New England. The camera comes back up to speed, and he comes in for the kill. Keep listening. Stay right there. Don't go anywhere. Stay. Sit. There were a lot of unfortunate things about 2017, but it's over. And so to celebrate, our team has chosen some of our favorite Studio 360 stories and interviews from this past year. First up, the key collaborator who has worked on every one of Martin Scorsese's films for nearly four decades, Thelma Schoonmaker. Schoonmaker is a brilliant film editor who has cut everything from the ballet-like fight sequences in Raging Bull to the crazed, drugged-out party scenes in Wolf of Wall Street. But our most recent collaboration with Scorsese, released last Christmas, is a very different kind of film. It's called Silence. Our Lord said to them, Go ye into the whole world and preach the gospel to every living creature. It's set in Japan in the 1600s, and it's this beautiful, meditative, anguishing story of... Jesuit missionaries, priests played by Andrew Garfield and Adam Driver, and an ex-priest, Liam Neeson. The Japanese authorities don't want any missionaries there at all and are torturing the local Christians to whom they're ministering. What would you do for them? Pray? And get what in return? Only more suffering. I pray too, Rodriguez. It doesn't help. Go on. Pray. But pray with your eyes open. That's Liam Neeson in Silence. Schoonmaker began our conversation by talking about making that film, which took Scorsese 30 years to get made. 30 years hoping to get made, right. And then we began working on it about two years ago in Taiwan. Um, and it was a very difficult shoot because they had to climb up all those mountains. And right. Marty, being a New Yorker, is not exactly into that kind of thing. Yes. Uh, before uh, Silence, uh, his and your last film uh, was The Wolf of Wall Street, <laughs> um, which is, you know, if you were going to say, it's like Obama versus Trump. How diff- How opposite can we be? Exactly. <laughs> um, well, 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 if, for you, is, is that a good thing to work on something so radically different in its theme? themes and its logistics and its design, music, editing, everything? Absolutely, because that's one of the great things about working for him uh, is that every film is different. He never wants to repeat himself, and he sets himself certain challenges with each film, and I get to go over the hurdle with him, which is very, very exciting. It, it makes every film a new, wonderful adventure, and I just love it. Right. Even though it, it lacks sort of uh, Scorsese trademarks like 
whoa, look at that complicated pivot, you know, tracking shot. There, there are some a couple of beautiful aerial shots. Well, that was very deliberate. Marty wanted to make it very simple and classic, right? Um, because he felt the material uh, demanded that, and also seventeenth-century Japan, which right. was a very formal place, demanded that. So he right. he wanted to really evoke the life of the villagers, and then also the dilemma that Rodriguez is in with very formal classic. Uh, um, filmmaking and didn't want a lot of quick cuts or jazzy camera moves or right. it, it, that he makes didn't sense. feel that was right yeah i think he he deliberately did not want to make it look like any film being made today and he particularly did not want the music to tell people what to think First, he said he wanted no music at all, that we would use insect sounds because uh, the Shinto religion in Japan is very much allied with nature. And um, also in the book written by uh, Endo, it is, uh, there are mentions of insects all the time, flies, cicadas, a bird sound. But then, and that's beautifully done. Yes, a lot of people say they do feel nature constantly. Yeah. A lot of cicadas. <laughs> yes. I've known him for a very, very long time, yes. and I was aware from the first film I ever worked on with him uh, that he had a deep interest in religion, right. but it was not cool for our generation in the 60s to be Christian. It was okay to be interested in Zen or right. you know some other exotic uh, form of religion, but not, not the Christian religion, and so I think he had to a certain extent hide it socially. Really? Um, because that was always one of the interesting things about him is that, whoa, he's this, he's this obsessed, guilty Catholic guy. But it's in his films. Yeah. It's very much in his films. I'll say, and not just The Last Temptation of Christ. Oh, no. <laughs> uh, from the very beginning. Yeah. You don't make up for your sins in the church. You do it in the streets. You do it at home. He's always wanted to make a film about the collision of Rome and Christianity. I don't know if we'll ever make huh. it. But uh, so he's always been deeply interested. He reads all the time um, great classical works. Um, and, and the other, I mean, one thinks The Last Temptation of Christ, and as you say, all the other Christian imagery and themes in other mm -hmm. films of his. But then there's Kundun as well, mm -hmm. which mm -hmm. is in Asia. It's a mm -hmm. biopic about the Dalai Lama. But like, Kundun meets Last Temptation of Christ is silence a little bit, right? Yes. I guess you could put it that way, right? I think he was interested in Kundun, not only in in the re religion in it, but in what it was like for a little boy to be, yes. to become a king, a, you know, the focus of this incredible right. devotion. Uh, I think that's what attracted him at first, but it certainly is one of the three films that he considers his religious films, yes. Right. Mm. And speaking of Wolf of Wall Street, it was a very funny movie, among yes. other things. Uh, and, and I was thinking, wow, and I, and I hadn't thought of it at the time, but thought, wow, since After Hours and I guess King of Comedy 30-odd years ago, I don't think there have been Scorsese uh, schoonmaker comedies. Uh, from an editing and per pacing performance, is that a different language altogether? Well, yes, if you're dealing with classic comedy, when we were cutting, for example, Jerry Lewis's footage in King of Comedy, um, really great comedians have timing uh, ideas. Uh, they said that uh, Gracie Allen was one of the greatest, wonderful radio uh, performer. And I television. Oh, I just loved her. Um, she had supposedly the greatest comic timing in the world, and they count. So, for example, uh, in, in Jerry Lewis would say to some of the people on the set, 
uh, I'm going to say something to you. Count to three before you answer me, because that's how the comic timing is built. Right. Um, so walk me through how you and uh, Martin Scorsese work together. I mean, you say you see a script, you see a shooting script right before he shoots, mm-hmm. and then you, then you wait till you get the film and, and mm-hmm. you do your thing. Is that it, or 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 and is he with you? Or do you sit down for a couple of days and say, okay, this I think goes here and this maybe is shorter? How does that work? Well, I always do the first cut. Um, On your own? Yes, from from his – when he looks at dailies with me, that's very important. And you do that as you're yes, shooting? Yes, hopefully, yes. We weren't able to do it a lot in Taiwan because they were so exhausted when they got back from <laughs> – and they were getting back so late. But uh, we – once he looks at dailies, then I uh, – he gives me a ton of notes and I tell him what I feel. He wants me to be a cold eye looking at the dailies sure. and tell him if there's anything wrong. I and he says the third take is great and you say, no, 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 that, it's the fifth take. That's right. So uh, I take very careful notes from that and then I make selects in descending order of preference of the delivery of the line for example and then I make the first cut and then as soon as he's through shooting he comes in and we do everything else together. We sometimes like to do 12 edits of our movies. And how many weeks is that? It depends. Sometimes it can be as long as a year. Really? Yeah. Uh, Sometimes it can be six months. We cut Cape Fear in six months. But never less than six months? No. Wow, that's a hard job. Yeah, it it takes a long time to get it right, you know, and uh So that's like 30 seconds a day or less. <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> I just did the math. It is. <laughs> um, but uh, you know, it's it's just very it's we work really hard and we screen much more and recut much more than most editors are allowed to do. Fortunately, we are allowed to do that. Right. Um, I think more editors should live with their films longer. You have to live with the film. Absolutely. Uh, really or, or anything. live with it. Yes. Yeah. And uh, that's that's so important. And then, of course, all the finishing work is takes a long time putting the music in and the sound effects and mixing it and right. all of that. Uh, it and you, so are you still highly involved in that process? Oh, very much so, yeah. 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 I mix the the rough cuts. So you're or, really the director. You're really the filmmaker. We should start saying Thelma Schoonmaker films. Not at all. Marty is very much the director. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm his collaborator. Everybody goes, yeah, yeah, yeah. But you know, it's true. I know. He's a great editor. He taught me everything I ever know about editing. So what did he teach you? Like, for instance, how how do you use editing and holding on a character to build the character? What's an example of that? Well, one thing that would be something you might know, which is that in the scene in Goodfellas where Joe Pesci is asking, what's so funny about me? What do you mean I'm funny? <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's funny, you know. It's a good story. It's funny. You're a funny guy. <laughs> what do you mean? You mean the way I talk? It's just, you know, you, it's, you're just funny. It's, it's funny, you know, the way you tell the story and everything. I'm funny how? I mean, funny like I'm a clown, I amuse you. I make you laugh. I'm here to f-ing amuse you. What do you mean funny? Funny how? How am I funny? One of the interesting cuts that we made there is uh, this is a situation that actually happened to Joe Pesci himself, and he told Marty about it, and then Marty decided to put it in the film. Uh-huh. So actually the Ray Liotta character is who Joe Pesci was, and Joe Pesci is playing the mafia guy uh-huh. who's who's tormenting him. And Pesci told Marty, I knew at a certain point that I had to figure out a way to break it with humor or something, or I was going to get killed. And so we spent a long time trying to figure out how long to wait for Ray Liotta to say, Get the f- 
daddy or to Tommy. <laughs> and we tried it with eight seconds. We tried it with seven seconds. We tried it with seven. To we end ended the tension up with if somebody's going to get killed right here. Six yeah. seconds of time. Right. And after the last explosive and threatening remark, how the f- am I funny? What the f- is so funny about me? Tell me. Tell me what's funny. Instead of cutting to Ray Liotta and having him say the line right away, Marty told him, wait. And then... Get the f*** out of here, Tommy. Uh, and everybody starts to laugh. So we tried many different lengths of how long to hold on Ray Liotta. That's huh. the kind of thing that right. editing is about. And one of the things I tell students, too, that whole sequence was shot in a medium-wide. There were no close-ups in it at all because Marty wanted to show what was happening to the people around Ray Liotta and around Joe Pesci. As it starts out very funny, everybody's laughing, then pretty soon things begin to get a little scary, and they get scarier and scarier. And you see on the faces of the people around them that they're really beginning to get worried. And that was a great lesson for me in the right use of technique. You don't always have to have close-ups. Um, sometimes a medium shot or a wide shot is just as good. Well, and it's interesting that you said he said, wait, and there's a version of comedy going on in that horrible, oh, my God, scene. And, of course, it, it, you said about Jerry Lewis in King of Comedy, he said, Get, count to three. So it is a timing thing of, of a second or two. Well, editing about. is all about timing and rhythm, yeah. you yeah. know, between two actors. And uh, uh, so that we often will... Um, delay uh, a line delivery or, for example, Marty sometimes will take the sound out as he did in, in silence. There's a scene where uh, Kichichiro steps on a, a, a Fumi and it swish pans to his mother who's and, horrified. And, and, and just so people know who that is, it's, it's this kind of skeevy uh, Christian character. Right, right, and, uh, and 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 who is forced to step on an image of Jesus? Of Jesus to show that he's right. apostatizing, giving up the faith, yep. supposedly. And the camera swish pans to his mother, uh, screaming in horror that he's done this. And Marty said, "Take the sound out," and it's so powerful. It's so powerful. And there are several other times where we did that in the movie too. Um, and there have been other times where we've done it in Raging Bull, for example, when Sugar Ray Robinson cannot get. Jake LaMotta to go down in the last crucial fight uh, and he can't figure out what he can do to get him to go down and Marty did this incredibly beautiful shot which where Sugar Ray pulls back, the lights dim and you just see Sugar Ray standing there breathing you hear just the sound of an animal breathing and our sound editor Frank Warner said to us, take the sound away and then go back to Sugar Ray and the lights come back up and the camera comes back up to speed and he comes in for the kill. And so all of that is what makes editing and great yes. camera work and great directing. Yes. <laughs> um, you have made all of these movies, all of Martin Scorsese's movies with him since 1980. Recently, I, you've done two, you've cheated on him twice, right? <laughs> I mean, Bombay Velvet and Learning to Drive? That's right, because while he was trying to raise the money, finally. Oh, for silence? Yeah. Uh, uh, you had to earn a living. I had to earn a living. And uh, these were people had come to him and asked if they, there was anyone he knew who could. So it was actually great. It, it was a great experience, both of them. And I, it, was, it helped me financially get through the year, right? 
right. Really? And and did it feel like, oh, hey, I I, I can do without him? <laughs> no. Um, it was it was interesting because I was not working with a director on either of them, and that was interesting. But you mean uh, you were just you just had the film and you were doing it your own? There were previous edits that I was re-editing. Ah. Yeah, and so because there was no director, it was really my call, um, and uh, it just it, it was very interesting to work that way. Did you did it make you feel like oh I can I can be a director? No, I would I I adore working with Marty. <laughs> it's yeah, very yeah, different. Yeah, sure. <laughs> uh, Delma, this was just uh, the greatest. Thank, Thank you. you. Thanks so much. To hear Thelma Schoonmaker give a blow-by-blow, and I mean an actual blow-by-blow of how she edited one of the great fight scenes in Raging Bull, go to our website, pri.org slash studio360. Coming up, Margaret Atwood describes the real-life American figure who inspired The Handmaid's Tale. Mary Webster is known as Half-Hanged Mary because she only got half-hanged. That'll be next in Studio 360. Studio 360. It's a funny thing. All at once, after Election Day a year ago, old novels with dystopian themes suddenly seemed freshly irrelevant and had huge sales upticks. There's George Orwell's 1984, of course, Aldous Huxley's Brave New World, and Sinclair Lewis's It Can't Happen Here, and Philip Roth's The Plot Against America, and Margaret Atwood's The Handmaid's Tale. In The Handmaid's Tale, fundamentalist Christian theocrats have taken over the United States And among other things, they force certain women called handmaids to bear children for infertile couples. So was it a future president bragging about sexual assaults that got people reaching for that book? Or him saying that women who received abortions must be punished? Or as president pushing to defund Planned Parenthood and continuing to call all the women accusing him of sexual misconduct liars? Whatever the reasons, The Handmaid's Tale is back in a big way. The book was adapted into a TV series for Hulu that won eight Emmy Awards, including Best Drama Series. It stars Elizabeth Moss as one of the handmaids, wearing the outfit made famous by the cover art of the book over the years, an old-fashioned red robe and white bonnet. There's a window with white curtains, and the glass is shatterproof, but it isn't running away they're afraid of. It's those other escapes. The ones you can open in yourself, given a cutting edge. Or a twisted sheet in a chandelier. I try not to think about those escapes. Thinking can hurt your chances. The Handmaid's Tale has also bubbled up in real-life politics. Recently, when an Arizona congressman asked aides to be surrogate mothers for him. And last spring, when extreme anti-abortion measures were introduced in the Texas State Senate and a dozen women in costume, the distinctive red robes and white bonnets, showed up to protest. We could not in good conscience ignore this oppression of our reproductive rights. So we stood as a group. Andrea Greer lives in Houston and works as a fundraiser for nonprofit groups, and she was one of those people who protested by dressing up like a character from a novel. 
Um, I did actually engage with the costume designer from the Hulu production, and huh, her suggestion was, if you just Google costume bonnet, you're going <laughs> to find plenty. Yeah. So that's how the uh, pros do it. So you artsy, literate activists decided this would be a cool idea, and you it looked really cool, I got to say, the photographs of you guys. Um, but did you worry about whether or not the legislators and the other people on the Senate floor were going to get the reference to this you know, Canadian novel from 1985? Kurt, it would be really easy for me to take a cheap shot at what their educational backgrounds might have prepared them for. So whether or not they understood the finer points of the literary criticism we were invoking, <laughs> right, right. Um, they, they knew something bad was going on. I have to say, like, the power of the costume, you eventually, I mean, you just really felt like a different person and it felt very serious and somber. And and had you ever in your in your years as an activist and protester and, and so on ever done anything this artful uh, let alone having cosplay involved? I have shown up in all sorts of outfits from uh Republican drag to actual costumes to get access to places, but never have I been part of an action that has so quickly gone viral, um, that has bounced around the internet the way it did, so that even by the afternoon, I immediately, frankly, left the Capitol and drove back to Houston. It's about a 170-mile drive. By the time I was home, I had friends who had sent messages to me saying, did you see what these women did in the Texas legislature today? In fact, I did. <laughs> now, that, of course, accomplished far more than would have been accomplished had we just stood up and shouted. So uh, it ha- it is a. I just checked Amazon this morning. It's a, it's a huge bestseller. This novel, and you probably didn't hurt that either. <laughs> um, what what uh, what? Why do you think? Well, um, the first time I'd read it was 1987 as a 16 year old who really didn't even have a political outlook on the world, who wasn't comfortable staking out positions on my own body, and then reading it now at 46 as someone who has been an activist um, who's worked in politics, who's worked in the healthcare sphere. Um, it's a very different book when you read it from that perspective. So I imagine there are many people like me who are rereading it, and it's harder and harder to read each time because it really is chilling. Margaret Atwood published The Handmaid's Tale in 1985. And she took inspiration from the rise of the Christian right in America during the 1970s and early 80s. It's time for God's people to come out of the closets, out of the churches, and change America. And also the 1979 Islamic Revolution in Iran. But another much older inspiration for Margaret Atwood was the story of a real-life woman in 17th-century New England named Mary Webster. Seven p.m. I was hanged for living alone, for having blue eyes and sunburned skin, tattered skirts, few buttons, oh yes, and breasts. The rope was an improvisation. Trust hands, rag in my mouth. With time, they'd have thought of axes. My name's Bridget Marshall. I'm an associate professor of English here at UMass Lowell. And I did research on some witchcraft cases that happened before Salem, and one of them was Mary Webster of Hadley, Massachusetts. 
Hadley is a small, small community of Puritans. Church is pretty central to their lives. There's also absolutely a baseline level of acceptance of and belief in witchcraft, that it's happening, that witches are talking to to the devil, and that the devil is active and walking around in New England causing trouble for the Puritans. 9 p.m. The bonnets come to stare, the dark skirts also, the upturned faces in between, mouths closed so tight they're lipless. I can see down into their eye holes and nostrils. I can see their fear. I can always do a good imitation of the Wicked Witch of the Wizard of Oz any old time. And you're a little dog, too. My name is Margaret Atwood, and I may or may not be related to Mary Webster. Some days my grandmother would say we were related to her, and on other days she would deny the whole thing (laughs) because it wasn't very respectable. I was actually trying to write a novel about her, but unfortunately I didn't know enough about the late 17th century to actually be able to really do it. But I did write a long narrative poem called Half-Hanged Mary because she only got half-hanged. 10 p.m. Well, God, now that I'm up here with maybe some time to kill, away from the daily finger work, leg work, work at the hen level, we can continue our quarrel, the one about free will. So January of 1685, Philip Smith is very, very ill. Now, Philip Smith is a leading light of the community of Hadley. He is uh, very involved in the government, very involved in the church, a very well-respected man. And this community says, wait a minute, why is Philip Smith suffering these torments? Well, in the Puritan mind, they don't know what's happening, and they think it must be a witch. If someone who is so good and so pious could be in such pain and be in such torment, there must be a witch involved. And they very quickly draw the line to Mary Webster. Mary's house was right on the highway, and if someone was taking a cart full of hay, for instance, they would say that sometimes their horses wouldn't go past her house, that they would stop. But if the man would go in and beat Mary, that then the horse could pass just fine. So there was this idea that her supernatural powers could be stopped if they somehow physically assaulted her. Based on those earlier examples, they decide that to help Philip Smith so he won't feel so sick anymore, they will go and do something to Mary. Twelve midnight. My throat is taut against the rope, choking off words and air. I'm reduced to knotted muscle. Blood bulges in my skull. My clenched teeth hold it in. I bite down on despair. Well, you do think about these things off and on for a long time because you think about things to which you don't have the answers. And the thing that we will never know is, how did she make it through the night? What was she doing all night when she was dangling from a tree? You know, what was she thinking about? 3 a.m. 
I dangle with strength, going out of the wind seethes in my body. I clench my fists. My lungs flail as if drowning. I call on you as a witness. I did no crime. This is a crime I will not acknowledge. Leaves and wind hold on to me. I will not give in. So Cotton Mather, a minister and author, in 1689 publishes Memorable Providences, and it includes a very detailed account of Mary Webster and Actually, I would say even more detailed about Philip Smith, her supposed victim. Mr. Philip Smith, son of virtuous parents, deacon of the church in Hadley, was murdered with a hideous witchcraft that filled all those parts of New England with astonishment. Cotton Mather's Memorable Provinces is 1689. 1692 is the Salem Witch Hysteria. They put 150 people in jail and murder 20 of them for accusations of witchcraft. Memorable Providences sets a lot of the stage for, for what happens in Salem, for that hysteria, right? It's feeding into this idea, witches are among us, look at the terrible things they're doing. Men like Philip Smith, good Christian men, are being killed by witches, quite literally. To me, it's one of the foundational moments in, in American history, the Salem trials. And the foundational part of it is you can't trust your neighbors. So, you know, think of what the bad thing is to be at the moment. They might secretly be one of those bad things. So it isn't until much later, in fact, 1767, that we have the first mention in any history about her being hanged. And so it's a later historian who gives us that detail. Cotton Mather's line says that they gave disturbance to her. And so what exactly uh, the disturbance was, it's not quite clear, but we do know that she lives uh, 11 years after the uh, Philip Smith incident. So she definitely, no matter how much she was disturbed, whether it was by hanging or something else, she still survived him. Six a.m. Sun comes up, huge and blaring. I would like to say that my hair turned white overnight, but it didn't. Instead, it was my heart, bleached out like meat in water. Also, I'm about three inches taller. Don't say I'm not grateful. Most will only have one death. I will have two. Yeah, so The Handmaid's Tale is dedicated to Mary Webster because she is an example of a female person wrongly accused. But she's slightly a symbol of hope because they didn't actually manage to kill her. She, she made it through. Well, I think it's important to note that Mary Webster did not have a voice in her church. She did not have a voice in her government. She did not have anyone who was uh, going to look out for her rights. And I think there's resonances here today where women do have more rights, but if we don't stand up and continue to defend those rights, we will lose many of them. So some of what is being said by lawmakers today sounds an awful lot like the 17th century to me. I just read that somebody is questioning any sort of support for, for pregnant women. You know, what's that about? I'm not sure what the gentleman is talking about when he talks about mandates. What mandate in the Obamacare bill does he take issue with? Would the gentleman yield? Yeah, sure. What about men having to purchase prenatal care? Why should I pay, says, says the man, why should men pay for, for pregnant women? 
That seems to me exceptionally ignorant. Uh, but it is, it is typical of the moment in which we, we live. Eight a.m. When they came to harvest my corpse, open your mouth, close your eyes, cut my body from the rope. Surprise, surprise, I was still alive. I fell to the clover, breathed it in, and bared my teeth at them in a filthy grin. You can imagine how that went over. Now I only need to look out at them through my sky blue eyes. They see their own ill will staring them in the forehead and turn tail. Before, I was not a witch. But now, I am one. Daniel Gimet produced that story. You can watch season one of The Handmaid's Tale on Hulu, and season two begins in April. Thanks to Kristen DeMercurio, who read excerpts from Atwood's poem. Coming up, we'll hear from a brave critic who does the unthinkable. He proclaims his love for The Godfather, part three. People told me that I was supposed to dislike that, and they pointed out all the reasons. It was not at all plausible or realistic, but cinematically, it's riveting. That's coming up on Studio 360. Today on the show, we're bringing you some of the Studio 360 team's favorite stories from 2017. Next up is Yawande Omotosho, whom I spoke to after reading her terrific novel, The Woman Next Door. It's about a pair of upper-middle-class elderly women who live in a well-to-do suburban enclave of Cape Town in South Africa. Marion is a white South African, and Hortensia is black and retired to South Africa after working in the UK. They're next-door neighbors, and they despise each other. When Yawande came in the studio, she started by reading a scene from the book where Hortensia, the black woman, goes next door to speak with Marion after finding out that she was not invited to the regular neighborhood committee meetings. Hortensia had taken a short trip to Marion's and pressed the buzzer on her intercom. It's Hortensia James from next door. She had not been offended by the absence of any show of welcome from her neighbor or the other residents. They had not come to Katerin to make friends, something both she and Peter had managed without for the bulk of their lives. Wait, I'll call my madam, a disembodied voice said. Hortensia leaned her shoulder against the wall. Hello? That must be Marion. It's Hortensia from next door. This was the moment when Hortensia understood that she would not be invited in. The slight annoyed her briefly, but she waved it away as unimportant. I'll be attending the meetings. It mustn't sound like she was asking permission. The committee meetings. Hmm. I hadn't realized you were owners. Hortensia still listening at the buzzer like a beggar. Yes, well, we are. 
well, I was and Hortensia could almost hear Marion searching for another gear. Is that gentleman your husband? She wasn't asking so much as scolding. Who, Peter? Yes. Again, this hadn't surprised Hortensia she'd fallen in love with a white man in 1950s London. They had been asked on many occasions to verify their courtship, to affirm that they were attached, to validate their love. Within a year of being together, they were practiced at it. Yes, Peter is my husband. I see. In the silence, Hortensia supposed Marion was thinking, inching towards her next move, preparing another strike. But instead, she heard a sigh and almost missed the details of the upcoming meeting. Marion even threw in a dress code as a parting gift. We dress for our meetings, Mrs. James. We follow rigorous decorum. As if she thought dignity was something Hortensia required schooling in. That was Yuande Omotosho reading from her novel, The Woman Next Door. So the, the, the character of Marion, the white woman, is not, as you portray her, wasn't an aggressive defender of apartheid, but she didn't do anything to, to fight against it. Was that standard in South Africa? I remember meeting a woman and speaking to her. I was so moved. A white South African, she just said, you know, I didn't do anything when she talked about apartheid. And she said, I live with that every day now. Huh. And I, I was like, wow, that's, that's my character, yeah. <laughs> you know, in a way. Look, you know, South Africa, we, we had the TRC. We looked at the obvious monsters. You know, we, we looked at... Explain what the TRC So is. The, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, that was a commission headed by Archbishop Desmond right. Tutu. And it looked like, hey, great, all fine. No, no blood, some, no Some violence. degree of that. Some yeah. degree yeah, of, yeah. okay, we've done that. Obviously, yeah. that's, that's false. And now, decades later, we know that as a society and we're dealing with that. So what's coming up now is that that didn't solve anything. And so the Marian character is very deliberate for me because I wanted to look at that person. She, she didn't defend apartheid. She hasn't poisoned anybody or right. shot anyone or said good. Right. You know, she hasn't done those things. But what about the little domestic crimes of apartheid, right. the quiet things in a corner? What about the little things that yeah. we've done and we're complicit. So Marion, many people were complicit. Right. Your father is a very big deal Nigerian and South African writer. Uh, Kole Omotosho. Mm. Talk about that, about going into the family business. To be honest, so I, my first degree is in architecture. I'm an architect. And my dad was quite instrumental in making sure I studied architecture and not English literature, which is what I thought I had to study to be a writer. Because you know, he wanted you to earn. I, yeah, he was just like, listen, <laughs> look, look, sit down. And he gave me the talk. And I went ahead and, and did that degree. I went back and did a master's in creative writing. Um, and I just informed my dad. And, you know, and, and he's been supportive. And people often say, oh, do you feel pressure? I don't feel pressure. I feel lucky, feel supported. But there isn't the sense like, oh, you've got to live up to something. Yeah. They, your family, uh, moved from Nigeria to South Africa when you were 12. 12. Mm -hmm. And apartheid was in its last legs, but still in effect, right? Yeah. yeah. Now, why does uh, this black African family with options and big fame, <laughs> wherewithal and all that, decide to move to Apartheid South Africa. It was a very deliberate choice of my dad's. I mean, we thought he was insane. 
as kids, we just thought, why are you taking us to this place where they don't like people like us? But he'd left Nigeria some time before because it was also, Nigeria was going through its own, right, we weren't yet thing. in democracy, yeah, yes. Yeah. But it was a time where Nigerian academics and, and intellectuals were being killed, letter bombed. You know, you, you couldn't write what you wanted to write. So he, we'd stayed there, but he'd left from like 88. Huh. He'd left and was lecturing um, in Europe. He wanted to bring us back together as a family again. He didn't want to not be on the continent. He wanted to stay in Africa. And he assessed the situation and said it doesn't look fabulous yet, but he felt it was going to get better. And so we went to the time when there wasn't this mass influx from the rest of Africa to South Africa. So he, he was sort of betting correctly on what on yeah, history. Yeah, they hadn't done the referendum yet. Right. So it was still in discussion. Mandela was still in prison. Mandela was still in prison. There were, there were discussions. Um, but South Africa hadn't been through its, you know, there was massive bloodshed between 92 and 94, you know, the warring between um, political parties. So, so much still had to happen that we were there to experience. So as a 12-year-old, you come to this, which is a time of change in a, a person's life, uh, you, you come to this country undergoing this change. I mean, how did those two things work together? Being an adolescent as South Africa goes from apartheid South Africa to democratic South Africa. Yeah, it was, you know, it was it was very strange. And I think, you know, I'd like to think of it as coming into South Africa at a time when, you know, when you walk into a room and the argument has already happened, but the tension is still there. Yes. So you, and you're 12, so you don't know all the details of what's gone on, but you you know, you can sense that something's the matter. We obviously, my parents sent us to the better schools. Those were schools that were only just opening to black people. So I went from Nigeria to suddenly being um, being weird, being strange, looking strange. And being one of a few black kids in a class. Being one of a few black kids and then not even being a black South African. You know, so it was difficult and, and a strange time. Well, it must have been a little scary to say, okay, I am this person who's lived here for more than half of my life. But to to write a novel that's all about the history of this place that I'm not really from, yeah. that, that took some bravery. Yeah, I, I think so. I mean, although people, some people kind of uh, challenge me and say, why isn't Hortensia black? Black South African, sorry. Why do you make her? And, and I said, you know, I just, I just needed a little bit of room um, to not be making a major character a black South African. And that has to do with my own sense of what I can imagine right now and what I feel I can't imagine. Right. Um, South Africa is interesting because it has 11 official languages. Um, but, but for me, when I write a black South African character, I'm writing somebody whose first language I have no grasp of. And that, that's a, something I, I struggle with. Yeah. Um, so as an architect, uh, were you a designer of houses or high rises or gas stations? or um, <laughs> For a long time, I did um, social housing with the company I worked for for five years or so. Um, As we call it, public housing. Public housing. And, and then I moved into the more corporate scene and, and worked for a property developer. You know, I need to confess my sins. And we did hotels and shopping malls, um, office blocks. At the moment with my company, I mean, we do anything because we're new. Oh, you new. still do it? Uh, yes, but it's architecture light because my, my two partners are on extended maternity leave and I take what I can cope with as, um, uh-huh. as a one person and I'm balancing it with the writing. Uh-huh. And how does that work? I mean, when, when do you write? It's a very experimental lifestyle. But you, do you expect you'll, you'll keep doing both for the rest of time? I hope so. My poor father sent me to school and I got an architectural degree. So, but no, it's not about him. I actually enjoy architecture and I, I think I'd be sad to not have some kind of foot in it 
it's important to me. Are you as good an architect as you are a writer? <laughs> oh dear, how do you answer that? <laughs> I do love them both almost equally. And I have the commitment to be as good at both. You know, I'm interested in, in being a, a great designer. Uh-huh. And I'm interested, I'm very interested in writing better and better books. We should poll the critics. <laughs> it was a pleasure talking to you. Thank you so much. I've enjoyed this. Yawande Omotosho's novel is called The Woman Next Door. Studio 360. A lot of the time, the movies that are nominated for Academy Awards and win really turn out to be among the great enduring works of American cinema. But not always. There are the obvious but ordinary injustices, like in 2006, when Crash won Best Picture, beating out Brokeback Mountain. But Maybe the most baffling of all was 26 years ago when another movie was up for seven Academy Awards, including Best Picture. In retrospect, those nominations seem preposterous because it is a movie everyone loves to hate, except this guy. My name is Ted Joya. I'm a writer that focuses on music, movies, literature, and popular culture. And my guilty pleasure is The Godfather Part Three. Really? Godfather 3? The credits from the second Godfather are better than Godfather 3. Massacres are a lot like sitting through Godfather 3. Once is enough. You like the third Godfather? I've never met anyone who liked the third Godfather. I will admit it in public. You've desecrated a classic film. This is worse than Godfather 3. Whoa, whoa, hey, whoa. Let's not say things we can't take back. Now, I have a, a, a different view of this film. I believe this is the essential conclusion to the Corleone saga. I think all of us, we remembered how great the first two movies were. And when we saw the third one, I'm sure I'm not alone, but the poor casting of Sofia Coppola really was a disappointment. Why are you doing this? Why am I doing this? You're using me just to pull the strings. Dad, I want this to bring me closer to you. And the Michael Corleone we see in the third part of the installment, he's beset by diabetes, he's got self-doubts, he's got anxieties. I don't think Pacino was ever completely comfortable in that role. When I'm under stress, sometimes this happens. To come to you on such a delicate matter was difficult for me. But I also see the other elements that really deserve more credit. I mean, there are extraordinary scenes there. There's an opening scene where uh, Andy Garcia uh, as Vincent Mancini has uh, two people try to break into his apartment, and, and it's a very vivid scene in how he deals with them and dispatches them. I want to do something to convince you. Don't get frightened. Don't do any sudden movements. Just watch me, all right? Do you hear what I said? Okay. There's this amazing scene where a helicopter tries to do a hit going through the ceiling of, of a hotel ballroom. I know people told me that I was supposed to dislike that scene. And they pointed out all the reasons. It was not at all plausible or realistic that if you were going to, to kill somebody in the mafia, you would not rent a helicopter. I mean, this is every step of it made no sense. But the actual experience to me of seeing that scene is exhilarating. I mean, remember North by Northwest? 
which someone tries to kill Cary Grant with with a crop dusting plane? Well, you know, give me a, give me a break. No one would, in their right mind would ever commit an assassination with a crop dusting plane. But cinematically, it's riveting. I'm a sucker for gangster movies. I'll watch The Godfather every time it's on TV. I'll watch Goodfellas. I mean, I'll watch these over and over again. I probably know a ridiculous amount of dialogue memorized that I will ad-lib in my own true life experiences from day to day. And these movies celebrate vengeance. They celebrate the vendetta. And the brave thing that Coppola did in this final installment is he breaks away from the formula. In the first two parts, Michael Corleone is able to wreak vengeance on his enemies. People have become accustomed to the gangster winning these battles. This is a very dangerous message to to send to people. There's a moral lesson. There's a lesson. I know this word moral sounds very heavy, but there are lessons for our own life. The true story of the Godfather trilogy is not a man who does all these acts of violence, but his attempts to extricate himself from the web they tie around him. Go on, my son. Go on. I ordered the death of my brother. I killed my mother's son. I killed my father's son. And I think people find that uncomfortable because they want to feel that Corleone will triumph. He will achieve all his goals. He'll legitimize the family. He'll get them out of... Uh, criminal business and into legal activities. People are rooting for him at every step along the way. He has to pay the price for his power hunger and for all the moral laws that he broke in his rise to the top. And I think him faltering and suffering so tremendously from all the violence that he inflicted on others, I think the story of the Corleone family does not make real sense unless you have this final installment. A bigger problem is the casting of Sofia Coppola, who is out of her acting league here. She's supposed to be Andy Garcia's love interest, but no sparks fly. Francis Ford Coppola's daughter had to bear the criticism and the pain and the suffering of him making this particular decision. And the the odd irony of this is this is the exact echoing of what happens in the plot of The Godfather Part Three, in which the daughter pays the penalty for the overreaching of the father. Mary! So in a way, even in its flaw, The Godfather Part Three emphasizes the key message that you get out of the movie. I think audiences back then weren't ready for it. In many ways, I think audiences are more prepared for it now. When you look at Breaking Bad, the main protagonist started out with heroic qualities, but with each passing episode and each passing season, he became more of a villain. Skyler? All the sacrifices that I have made for this family. I believe the same thing is true of The Godfather Part Three. I spent my life protecting my family. Back when it came out in 1990, I don't think people were ready for a character that morphs the way Corleone does and is eventually punished for all his bad decisions. But nowadays, we're able to accept that level of sophistication. And this is a movie that I believe at some point in the future, 5, 10, 15, 20 years from now, will be recognized. Just when I thought I was out. As one of the finest American movies of its era. They pull me back in. Ted Joya's book, How to Listen to Jazz, is in bookstores now. 
And I should say, by the way, that even though it was nominated for seven Oscars, The Godfather Part Three did not win a single one. A reminder that sometimes justice prevails in the end. And that's it for this week's episode. Are you disappointed because you didn't hear your favorite story from this year? Well, don't worry. In our next episode, we'll share more of our favorite stories from 2017. Studio 360 is a production of PRI, Public Radio International, in association with Slate. Our executive producer is... Jocelyn Gonzalez. Our senior editor is... Andrew Adam Newman. Our technical director is... Louis Mitchell. Our producers are... Sam Kim. Zoe Saunders. Tommy Bazarian. And I'm Kurt Anderson. I'm funny how? I mean, funny like I'm a clown, I amuse you. <laughs> Thanks very much for listening. PRI Public Radio International. Next time on Studio 360, it was erotica that was intentionally preposterous. Together, like garden snakes, they contorted, moaned, gasped, clenched, and throbbed. But it still ended up as a New York Times bestseller. The Making of a Literary Prank. That and more of our favorite stories from 2017 next time in Studio 360.